Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is over 184 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. You belong here. I'm Mary Curran Hackett, and I'm here today with Joe Hyde. And together we are leading a discussion of the famed, lauded, and celebrated um, Miguel de Cervantes' um, Don Quixote. And the, the name of our um, group of readers is called The Impossible Dreamers. And we met recently on September 10th um, to discuss and kick off the, um, the book that's going to be broken down into four, four nights. So if you haven't joined us, you are still able to join us. We haven't even started the discussion of the main part, part one, on October 8th, and then we will have a discussion again on November 12th of part two, and then a wrap-up on November 26th. All of those are Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. And um, in our last meeting, we had um, the pleasure of... um, Keith um, Maddox joined us. He is a, known as Profe Maddox by his students at Walnut Hills, where he used to teach. Um, and he has over 45 years of teaching experience at both high schools and universities. And he is um, a self-proclaimed Cervantes expert. He studied in Spain at the University of Salamanca, um, where Cervantes was thought to be, though it is neither confirmed nor deny, a student and where Christopher Columbus consulted with university map makers to plot his exploration. Um, Profe taught, um, did his thesis there, studied there and did his thesis there. And he joined us in our first discussion to kind of fill us in on the context and background of Don Quixote and Cervantes. And um, in order to wrap that up, I'm gonna turn it over to Joe, who remembers a lot more than I do all of the great content that Profe shared with the group. Thanks, Mary. Um, Yes, speaking of background and context, let's talk a little bit about how we came to be doing this book in pieces here at the Mercantile. Um, Starting uh, several years ago, uh, someone had the great idea, I don't know exactly who it was, to break great masterpiece works down into pieces and have a low-stress and high fun way to get through these masterpiece works that we've all wanted to read, maybe read in high school but forgot, or read the cliff notes of in high school, and now we get to read them later in life and really enjoy them. The first one was War in Pieces, which we did a couple of years ago, uh, and that's how I first met Mary, and we were part of that group. And this, um, this next group was really an outgrowth of that, and we've been talking about it for well over a year and a half to figure out what would be the next great book that we want to break into pieces In the meantime, uh, the Mercantile has hosted several other discussion groups like that of Moby Dick, of Crime and Punishment, and currently at the same time as our group, Ulysses, James Joyce's masterpiece, is being discussed in pieces. For Don Quixote, as Mary mentioned, we thought we would start our first discussion by having an academic come and talk with us about the book. We did that with Moby Dick, uh, and it was very beneficial. There happens to be a local expert at Northern Kentucky University on that masterwork, and it really did help us all address the book and come into the book understanding the background. 
So Profe Maddox was asked and graciously accepted the invitation to come do that for us here last Tuesday evening. And uh, having taught the book for years, having traveled in Spain and taught in Spain, and apparently in Spanish, uh, it was great to hear his, his lecture before we got started. Um, he began by telling us a lot about our author, about Miguel de Cervantes, and I'm going to say it wrong, uh, Saavedra, it's the best I can do, um, and his times that he lived in and his family. And that was very interesting uh, because as you address a book like this, a 415-year-old book that is still the single largest selling uh, work of fiction in the Western world, second only to the Bible in sales and in, in different languages it's been translated to. So obviously a book <laughs> that is still being read. Uh, and to read it here in 2019, it helps to understand what was going on in 1605 when Cervantes wrote it uh, in his 50s. And for those of us in our 50s, it's nice to know we can still accomplish great things in our fifth decade. Um, but uh, Cervantes was a very interesting person, as we learned from Profe Maddox, um, a soldier, a wounded soldier, a prisoner, um, basically uh, imprisoned by pirates, uh, and, and was in prison in North Africa for, I believe, five, six years, uh, tried to escape and did escape four different times from his prison and was recaptured. So he had quite an adventurous life before he returned to Spain, injured from battle uh, in, uh, on behalf of Spain in a naval battle, injured, uh, shot twice in the chest and once in the left hand and lost the use of his left hand for the rest of his life. Came back to Spain um, and we learned about the life he lived there. Uh, as Mary mentioned, whether or not he ever got any college education is unknown, but he certainly was well read, uh, extensively read, and read a lot of these chivalric novels, if I'm saying that correctly, these novels about knights and chivalry, and that informed him writing this book. Uh, one of the interesting things that I learned, that we learned about from Profe Maddox, was his family. Um, Miguel de Cervantes' father was a barber and a surgeon, which was common at the time, that if you were cutting hair, you might as well cut into human bodies and do bloodletting and do all those other things that... Bone setting. And bone, that doctors <laughs> uh, did back in the 16th and 15th century. Um, and there is some conjecture that based on his income level and his profession, that he might have been one of... Um, he might have come from a Jewish family that converted because this was the time of the Spanish Inquisition and Jews and Muslims in Spain and elsewhere, but especially, especially in Spain, were given the option to convert or be tortured and killed. And um, there is some conjecture that Cervantes' father was a converso, a converted Jew. But in any event, uh, Cervantes grew up in a large family of what was called seven children, minor gentry, because his father did have a profession. But Cervantes himself struggled uh, through the rest of his life after coming back from his adventures to basically make a living, and that caused him to get into financial difficulty himself with the bookkeeping he was doing for uh, the Spanish government, and to be thrown back in jail twice in his adult life, uh, the second time of which was when he was in his 50s, and when legend has it, he came up with the idea to write Don Quixote and began it, and maybe even wrote most of it while he was in prison which is the setting for the great play, Man of La Mancha. If you've seen it, the Broadway play starts with Cervantes in prison thinking of this wonderful idea of a novel. And that play, of course, includes the song, The, the, the Dream, dream the, the Impossible, impossible dream, dream, and the name <laughs> of our group. 
So anyway, I'll hand it back to you, Mary. What the other interesting things we learned about Cervantes and the background of this novel? Well, I think what was key that is the time period that he was living in is um, basically Spain has reached its heights of grandeur. It has um, sent ships across the world. It relished in all of the glory um, that it had. And when we meet um, this character, um, Don Quixote, who some people argue is a reflection of or an alter ego of Cervantes, he is living in a time period in which um, Spain has seen better days. There's poverty. There is... um, Dissent. There are three different main religions um, vying for, um, I guess, a place in society. Um, um, so there's this hearkening back to the way things were, a better day, which is, of course, in keeping with chivalry and the idea that at a, there was a time when romance ruled all, when there were poets and, and grandeur and um, beauty and, and there was not poverty, there was... there. There was not this, um, if you were going to go with the opposite of chivalry, barbaric, violent, um, uncouth way of living. Um, So we have um, the Spanish Inquisition plays a huge, huge role in understanding this. So understanding the religion um, aspects. Um, Some questions that arose from the group when Profe were here, I thought were really great and might help illuminate our readers. And one of them was, you know, what was the Spanish Inquisition? I mean, we may have learned about it or touched on it in history, in, you know, European history in in high school or back in college, but really understanding what was the Spanish Inquisition, how long did it last, and what were the lasting repercussions? Right. And so... Um, and in Spain in particular, there was the other dynamic similar going on at the same time, which was to basically throw the Muslims out of the country. Absolutely. Obviously, they had overtaken Spain and the whole Iberian Peninsula, and it was called the Reconquista, I guess, mm-hmm. the reconquering of the peninsula. So there's both the rise of um, the, the, popal, the papal bull, it was, as it was called, mm-hmm. that declared that it's time to have an inquisition or to, an inquest as to who is true to the faith and who is not, and to drive out those that are untrue to the faith. And in Spain, they're driving out the Muslims. And it was not until late in the 16th, early 17th century that the final province of Spain was cleansed of the Muslims, or the Moors, as they called them. Uh, And it was now a Christian Catholic country again. So there's that going on, and the effort to cleanse the faith, and the rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim. And to know that's all going on when you read this book, you can see how, and Profe Maddox talked about this, how carefully Miguel de Cervantes must tread around some of these issues, and yet he treads around them, and he gets away with it by the farce, by the parody. And it's one of the brilliant aspects of this book, is how much is parody, and how much, you know, through the parody, our author is telling us some things yes. that about the world that he can get away with because of this character who is constantly termed to be mad, and everybody knows he's mad, so we can say things and do things that won't get the author in trouble and thrown in front of the inquest uh, that others wouldn't get away with and be this epic parody of a chivalric novel. And, and it comes up again and again in the book, walking this fine line about religious purity and anti-Jewish and anti-Muslim sentiment, and yet that comes up throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And there's even a, a Muslim female character that plays a large role in the book. 
And if you read the, when you read the first part, you will see that Cervantes even creates this kind of nesting book within a book where he is hearing an, a translation of an Arab author who actually recorded these deeds of Don Quixote. And he says at one point, well, we all know how untrustworthy uh, Muslim people are, again, with maybe a wink and a nod. <laughs> so there's that whole dynamic going on as well as this splendid story of this wonderful man who is hearkening back to an age where people cared about honor and dignity and morality. Mm-hmm. And he's, um, I, I thought what was interesting too about the, the whole role of um, Muslims and Jews and Christians and their, the, in, the intertwining of it is um, Cervantes is known to be um, a Catholic. He was um, actually given his last rites as a Catholic by the Franciscans. I looked that up, and he was educated by the Trinitarians. And yet, um, he pokes fun a lot at um, Catholics. And in fact, I would say to um, all, anybody reading it, really pay attention to the notes at the bottom mm-hmm. when there is one, because even the mention of, say, for a priest, the priest that um, helps him is uh, considered um, not the smartest man. <laughs> He's from not the smartest area or wasn't educated in the best places. So he, uh, the, the translator is giving us tips to even point out that the allusions that we may even be missing that would have been very obvious in the time yes. of, of um, Cervantes. So, and, that, and that priest helps to select the books in Don Quixote's library that get burned, burned, which again, talk about a sensitive subject to tread upon yes. at the height of the Inquisition in the early 1600s is book burning. And yet he has a lot of fun with it. Yes. There are all these inside jokes. One of Cervantes, like Cervantes' first novel is in the book as one of the books that the priest says, oh no, you got to keep that one. That's a good book. That's so good there's book. all these inside <laughs> jokes yes. and he's talking about a priest burning books. So he's right at the edge of what he's allowed to get away with. But actually, I did look this up, mm-hmm. and book, priests were the book burners. Mm-hmm. Um, since the um, even early the medieval times, because of the imprimatur, that, and once publishing was happening um, and books were getting disseminated widely, you know, um, Rome stepped in and said, we have to control what people are reading and what people are thinking if mm-hmm. we want to maintain the purity of the faith. So every book that was published had to get an imprimatur, which was a seal from the local bishop. And so, and when it, when they didn't get to that seal, it was burnable. So the person, the persons who would be in charge of the censorship and the burning would have been the clergy. So he's not saying anything that's wrong. Right. So it's, he is, he's towing that line, but at the same time, on a very high level, making fun of all of it and making fun of the people who are choosing it. One of the things, speaking of books, though, that I thought was really interesting and that we really didn't touch on when we, um, when we talked to uh, Maddox was just how prolific Cervantes was. We, as an author. As yeah. an author. And he struggled his whole life in poverty as a writer, which is very comforting <laughs> to know um, for all of us writers out there. But he, he was, and he was never even compensated properly in his lifetime for this book. For this book. Yes, right. exactly. So there were so many books that he wrote. And what was interesting was, if you're looking at it from this parody level, is he wrote chivalric romance pastoral novel. Mm-hmm. That was his first. And that's what turns Don Quixote mad. So, I mean, right. when you think about it, what is that? 
<laughs> what is that saying? That was the writing of the chivalric novel making him mad? Or reading too many of novels like the ones he wrote makes you crazy. Yeah. But I, I think <laughs> exactly. you're right, Mary. The other thing that, uh, that I picked up reading some background on him is that he wrote plays as well, uh, and they all failed. He wrote, yes. he wrote a, a number of different dramatic works, which, is, which was common at the time. It was actually known as the golden age of Spanish um, writing uh, for the stage, but not a single one was produced successfully. And according to at least one of his biographers, they say that he always believed that, that dramatic writing and specifically poetry, long disquisition type of poetry, was the highest form of writing. Uh, and he could never succeed at it. He, he couldn't do it. But what you see in this book if you read it, and again, we hope that you do because it's a lovely read, is there, he doesn't miss an opportunity to have about four or five pages of verse, whether it's he's re repeating what a goat herder sang as a song uh, to the death of another goat herder or whatever it is. He doesn't miss an opportunity to drop in some verse, and this is verse that we know he wrote um, as a frustrated dramatist and poet it comes through the book as well. It gives him a chance to, to write to and use publish. To use his material that was sitting exactly. in like sh shreds all over his desk. Exactly. So yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's a fascinating background. But um, the other thing I want to turn the lens on for a minute to is looking forward. That, that's looking backward. Looking forward, this is known, and you'll read this if you read any reviews of it, as the first modern novel, the first modern Western novel anyway. And, and part of what we talked about is what does that mean? And what we will be talking about in our next couple of sessions, what does it mean for it to be a modern novel? And all the different aspects of modern novels that appear first in this novel. And there are so many that, that you can talk about. One of the things that Profamatic said that I wrote down and I want to come back to in our discussion groups is he believes this is a very realistic novel in many respects, maybe the first truly realistic novel in Western in the Western canon. And this is a novel about someone who's mad, who is tilting at windmills and believes that goat herders are marauders and that every inn he stays in is a castle. How can that be a realistic novel? But it's everything else going on around him and the way people treat him and Sancho Panza and the interaction between Sancho and him that makes this, I believe, a, a very realistic novel in a sense of how real people lived, thought, believed, reacted to things. So that's one aspect of whether this is a modern novel and the fact that it is, but there are so many other ones that we're going to talk about things, and, and Profamatics did too, things to be on, to oh. be looking for. The one was this, this Muslim female character, mm -hmm. um, to, to read that with an eye toward what was going on in the country at the time. And then also the relationship between Sancho Panza and Don Quixote, it's the classic um, foil character representation. You have this one character and then the opposite sidekick friend who is con constantly contrasting that behavior and giving it a lens of um, an opposite lens. So you get this sense of um, logic, um, realism, and we get to see the world through another set of eyes, not just this particular character's point of view. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that is a that is a storyline that is replicated all the way. You can look at Batman and Robin as the most, you know. <laughs> iconic mm -hmm. or what have you, popular. But everywhere you go in every story, you have this foil type of relationship. It's um, the first buddy. The first buddy, buddy, buddy novel tale, story. Buddy novel Some tale. people call it the first road novel. They're obviously, they're road traveling novels, They're traveling, adventure. Yes. Uh, uh, Odyssey would be a complete, right. you know. Um, a different road di novel. Different, <laughs> different kind of road novel. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, 
the other thing is he was a contemporary of um, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Shakespeare was doing this. Some would argue Shakespeare was doing the same thing. We have Hamlet, Falstaff. We have, mm-hmm. which um, Harold Bloom in the introduction to this um, particular, um, and I don't think we named the translation that we're using, um, the translation by Edith Grossman, Harold Bloom writes a wonderful introduction to, and he relates this book to Cervantes, um, Don, Don Quixote, to Hamlet. But Cervantes would be the first to say, or through Don Quixote, that um, all, um, how does he put, all comparisons are odious. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, he did not, I don't think he appreciated being uh, compared to anything. But uh, but Harold Bloom does it anyway, page but, after absolutely. page. Page he, after page. And there's some beautiful things to think about because they were contemporaries. They died not on the same day, but I believe very close to each other. By that, I mean Shakespeare and Cervantes. He believes, Bloom does, that Shakespeare read Cervantes, but Cervantes did not read Shakespeare because of the way literature traveled between those countries at the time. Who knows if that's true or not? But I found the comparisons fascinating. The fact that the first live production of King Lear was was in the same month that Volume 1, Part 1, of Don Quixote was released. So, I mean, these are just... It's really interesting to think these are happening at the same time. One of the things Harold Bloom does in the introduction, in in the comparison part, which I found fascinating, is talking about the different use of conversation that Shakespeare had in his plays as compared to Don Quixote. So, um, as we all know, there is lots of looking at the audience and talking in Hamlet and the other Shakespeare plays, uh, and we overhear these folks having conversations and even, again, talking in great soliloquies to the audience, but there's not the kind of shared conversation through which the characters reveal themselves and grow as there is in this novel. And that's one of the glories of reading this novel is the conversations, the constant conversations between Don Quixote and Sancho Panza is how we get to know them. It's how they grow as characters. And it's in that exchange, in that dialogue, that a lot of the the wonderful aspects of the book occur as opposed to us overhearing or being told things by someone looking at the audience. Um, according to Bloom, anyway, there's not a really legitimate conversation in all of Shakespeare where the two characters really grow and realize anything. They realize it by talking to themselves or by talking to the audiences when they come to these great epiphanies, whereas these two characters grow through the exchange, um, which I found to be an interesting comparison, even though all comparisons are odious, apparently. Yes. What I was excited about when I read the Harold Boone, if you, one could be excited about reading <laughs> criticism, but I was, mm. was um, he got self, he himself got self-referential, which this book I feel like invites all of us to do is, um, and I think that's the realism is that even though this was written 14, uh, um, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, we still can relate to this, these feelings of feeling lost or these feelings of wanting um, something to be better than before or feeling misunderstood by our world or wanting to change the world or having to adapt to and change to um, the world that we're living in that doesn't seem to be um, in line with what we see. Um, and then there's this kind of idea of there, you know, you can split the world in two types of category, the dreamers and the, those that don't dream. And Harold Bloom even reflects personally, 
in the essay, I would rather be Falstaff or Sancho than a version of Hamlet or Don Quixote because growing old and ill teaches me that being matters more than knowing. The knight and Hamlet are reckless beyond belief. Falstaff and Sancho have some awareness of discretion in the matters of valor. And I was like, wow, Harold Bloom just gave us a piece of his own beliefs about, you know, which side of the aisle he lies on in terms mm-hmm. of who he, he favors in this story. But it also invites us as readers to ask that question while we're reading it. Are we the dreamer? And is it okay to be the dreamer? Is it okay to see the world as we hope it could be rather than the way it is? And are we, um, is there any harm in that, if you will? Are we damaging anybody with that philosophy um, or are we causing more pain to ourselves or others? Um, and then, all, of course, there's those of us, we all know our Sanchos in our life and Falstaffs who, are, are, um, who give us our equilibrium, tell us what the right thing to do is or what we're really should be, what we should be seeing or doing. Um, but it kind of makes you wonder like where you fall in that category in the world. Um, and it's clear that Cervantes saw the world in those kind of, um, aspects, whether he was making fun of them or not is also up to discussion as well. It's the, it's the layers in the book, which is why we're still reading it 400 years later. Exactly. And that it's still relevant. It's still relevant to wonder Mm -hmm. Is it okay to be slightly askew? Is it okay to see the world as you hoped it would be versus the way it is? Um, it's not only still relevant. One of the reviews of this translation of Edith Grossman's wonderful translation, which came out in 2003, 2004, actually ended by saying, reading Don Quixote today in our simplistic world of good versus, e- good versus evil and inquisitorial dogmas is one of the healthiest experiences a modern democratic citizen can undertake. And um, that says it much more eloquently, but i got to say that's one of the reasons that we here at the Mercantile picked this book to read now as our next great book when we picked it a while ago after, after War and Peace, is a number of us thought now is the perfect time to read this book um, for a lot of reasons. It, it's in some sense a graceless age that we're living through where Everything is about personal acquisition and fighting over limited resources and doing bad things to our planet. And just to take a breath and to take some time to spend with someone who is, uh, if not dreaming the impossible dream, uh, at least uh, considering remaking the world with the way they see it, remaking people and, and with the way they see them, um, remaking windmills into giants, but otherwise trying to change the world through imagination and through perception, um, and and to bring a little romance and chivalry back to the world seems like the perfect thing to read right yeah, now. Exactly. So. And seeing goodness in others that others could not see, mm-hmm. um, remaking the prostitutes into glorious, beautiful women, damsels in castles, mm-hmm. <laughs> even if they're in the inn. But also, I mean, in in contrast to that, talk about a layer that he is inviting us to see is that while we can use our imaginations to see a better future and a better life for ourselves and goodness in others and um, dream the impossible dream, there is also an inherent, there is somewhat of a danger in believing that there was a time that was better, that was more genteel. Um, Because if you know anything about the time period that was actually happening is 
People were being slaughtered for religion. Um, the knights that were getting in gear were killing someone over their belief that their God was superior to another right. God. That um, the idea that this romance was happening and that people were chased was not a reality. That's why all of these laws were coming in from Rome. You shouldn't be having sex out of marriage because diseases are happening mm-hmm. all over the place, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, that these things weren't as they were in the past. And it can lead to a kind of collective delusion if you really truly believe that there there was a time when everything was great and we can make it great again or we can make it um, whole again or um, just by sheer, you know, um, madness, <laughs> if yes. you will. Or, um, and so there's all of these layers to looking at the question of what is real, what is, um, what is possible, and um, making yourself think about these things really um, thoughtfully and deeply. And I think that is the pure power of, so far of what I've been reading is Cervantes is um, you have something very simple and entertaining and fun on a very surface level, but your brain is synapses are firing on all these other levels. You are forced to think about mm. things you've taken for granted. You are forced to think about history. You're forced to think about religion. You're forced to think about roles of people all while you're enjoying a very simple plot-driven story of a crazy guy who wants to, in whatever scene, conquer a, you know, get his knighthood or mm-hmm. find, save the damsel or mm-hmm. find love. So um, it's, it's masterful. It's amazing. And then the other thing that we haven't really talked about is the language nuance is kind of incredible and kind of in- surprising. Yeah, the way I, he uses the language and also the way he plays with the notion of truth because, again, speaking of the layers, you've got these novels which are very popular, I guess, in the late 1500s in Spain, which were themselves glorified chivalric and pastoral novels, and then Don Quixote has read all of them. It has made him mad, and when he makes reference to, to these characters, you'll learn from the footnotes, he gets, all, get, gets it wrong all the time. He'll misstate who did what in some novel. So you've got error at like five different levels, and yet it's driving this person's behavior and his view of the world and the language he uses. So he, he hearkens back to using that kind of glorified, old-fashioned language. And Edith Grossman does a great job of giving us some of that when it's that, and then giving us more modern English when it's just describing actions and activities and things people are doing. So you can tell, okay, now we're in the madman's view of the world. And so you get all these layers that are we know are incorrect. And so one of the reviews says, this is the very first novel of the, the ultimate unreliable narrator. Because to the extent this story is narrated through Don Quixote, you know he's mad. He even gets his references to these novels wrong. He misstates people's names <laughs> constantly. And yet he's not even really the narrator. We learn that this is an Arabic translation by some other person who is unreliable. And Cervantes himself is winking and getting things wrong throughout. So you, you, know, you have a nested narration of inaccuracy. And so if you're really trying hard to understand what's true, I think you're kind of missing the point. Or maybe that is the point. Well, I was the just point going is to say, what's true is maybe what you want to be true. Exactly. <laughs> or know. what is perception is reality. Right. And how much of our happiness and much of our pain, in, it's very actually, if you look at it, you take the Jewish and the Christian and the Muslim out of it, it becomes very Buddhist in the sense that what we focus on, we create. 
and what we're attached to creates our suffering. Right. Um, so it's this kind of mindfulness that's going on. Cervantes is one of the first masters, I would say, of mindfulness. He is completely aware and conscious all the time of this higher level of consciousness and that so much of our pain and suffering and dramas that unfold on a daily basis in life are caused by these perceptions um, that we've chosen to create, these costumes we've chosen to wear, these roles we've chosen. And then all of us are kind of um, doing a very Shakespeare, to bring Shakespeare into it, all the world is a stage and we are merely players. We show up in the world as the roles we've assigned to ourselves. I'm the mm. madman. I'm Sancho. I'm the logician. I mm. am the knight. I'm the warrior. I'm right. the lover. I'm the prostitute. Mm. And then we all play together and our suffering and joy is determined on right. what we choose to see. So I and thought... And this book is about the power to define each other, each other and define our world through how we view it. Exactly. And how we interact in it. Because... Real things obviously happen in the book. That's what makes it fun. Somebody called it the first version of Netflix. Yes, it's that episodic. You, you read one, binge. you read, and you got a bit. You read because the, the the title of the next chapter says, "In which a further account." Oh, I got to read that. You yeah. know, in which so it draws you to the next episode, the next adventure, the next, and things are happening. His ear is getting cut off. His helmet is getting damaged. You know, I mean, he's going to a a, a funeral. So there are there is a reality going on. Um, and what's going to be really interesting is when you get to part two, how the reality becomes very meta, where the reality includes part one having been issued and people reading it. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting. And some people think part two is actually the pure genius of Cervantes to have that kind of meta aspect yeah, where the characters are aware that people have read about them and they have to live in that world. What's mm -hmm. it like to live in that world? So... Hang on for part two, uh, which Mary will lead us through on our second gathering uh, in, what's, what's the date of that one? In November. It's November 12th, part two. November right. 26th is our celebration, final thoughts, and paella. So that's the way we'll be doing this, is we'll be talking about part one, which is about 400 pages, and it was written to be its own novel uh, in, in October. And then in November when we meet, we'll talk about part two. And then we do have one final meeting to just celebrate, to have some paella and some Spanish wine, we're going to be playing the soundtrack of the uh, Man of La Mancha in the background and the Golden Helmet of Mambino song and all these songs that are in some of our heads that saw that play uh, and just celebrate uh, this wonderful novel. Absolutely. So that's what we have ahead, and we hope that you will join us on our journey, on our quest. On our quest. As we sally forth. To dream the impossible dream. <laughs> if you'd like to join us for our next meeting, it's October 8th, Tuesday at 6 p.m., all you have to do is shoot an email to info, I-N-F-O, at mercantilelibrary.com and say you want to be a part of it. I believe it's $20, and um, you'll just come, and you will join a group of wonderful readers already who are very excited to read and get to know it. And we gave everybody a little assignment, very brief assignment, besides reading the 400 pages <laughs> or 500 pages. I'm not even quite sure. It's 400 something. 400 yeah. something. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite fun. You'll, they'll, they'll breeze by. But um, we've also um, are looking for um, Don Quixoteisms in the modern world all around us. And um, we already saw, I was in Joseph Beth, the um, Rushdie book now is um, Don, about Don Quixote. Um, there's movies out. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is just released 2018. That's out. There's references all over. Um, if you're listening to political commentators, somebody will say they're tilting it when Mills. 
Don Quixote. So just keep on a lookout. I'm always looking for an answer in Jeopardy. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. either Cervantes or Don Quixote related. So there's lots of stuff. And if, you, if you're interested, there's tons of books, films, opera, ballets, music related to it. So Symphonies, it's just fun. Symphonies, classical Symphony, music. Uh, visual art, Dolly yes. and Picasso. Um, so there's all sorts of things. Oh, and then also look at books that you're reading. You'll see Twain was hugely influenced by Cervantes, Huck Finn, and Tom Sawyer are supposedly modeled. Uh, there's so many books, so mm-hmm. we could be here all day. But those are just fun little things to be on the lookout for while you're reading. But other than that short assignment, we want to make it clear to everyone, there is no test. There will be no quiz given. If you don't finish all 400 pages, you can come anyway. Please join us. We'd like you to read it. It's fun. Yeah. But there is no test given. There will be no assignments. That this, this is meant to be folks who enjoy the book and want to come and talk about it and what it teaches us about the world we live in. So feel free to come wherever you find yourself in the book to all of our sessions um, and join us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on The 12th Story. We encourage you to subscribe via our preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet us at Mercantile Live, L-I-B. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.